Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. A proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. This is part of our Craft Talk Friday edition of Charlotte's Podcast. We're running in November, December 2021, in which we're releasing earlier Patreon episodes, Craft Talks that I've had with uh, experienced authors. Now, you may ask, what's Patreon? Well, Patreon is a place where supporters of the podcast for a few dollars a month uh, can help us help authors give voice to their written words and in return we provide exclusive content there are over 100 uh, exclusive episodes available at our patreon channel that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash charlotte readers podcast but for these fridays in november december of 2021 we're going to be providing some of our early patreon episodes to our general listening public before we introduce today's author and guest, uh, just a quick reminder that you can find out everything you need to know about Charlotte Readers Podcast at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find our show notes there. You can find uh, all the episodes uh, that we've released. Uh, you can also find our community blog and a way to sign up for the book report, which we send out to you every two weeks with information about the podcast, good books, uh, doses of inspiration, that kind of thing. And uh, hey, we don't spam you because that takes way too much time. We've got one more plug, and it's a shameless one at that. This episode is also brought to you by my own books. You can find out more about my books at LandisWade.com. We've got information there about my Christmas courtroom trilogy, the individual books, and we've also bound them together in one ebook collection if you like ebooks. My next novel, titled Deadly Declarations, is coming out next year. In the first quarter of 2022, it's a mystery. We got information about that on the website as well, landisway.com. It involves the controversial and long-missing Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. A man dies while he's writing a book about the Mech Deck, and when they find his body, the manuscript is missing. But that's enough preamble for today. I want to thank you for spending your valuable time with us. We really appreciate it. And now, let's meet the author and listen to the episode. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with George Hovis, an award-winning author and professor about strategies for finding the mysterious, the surreal, and the sublime available in everyday landscapes, and explores how setting gives birth to characters and plots, and how in turn, the actions of characters define a place. George Hovis's novel, The Skin Artist, was a finalist for the Eric Hoffer Book Award, nominated for the Sir Walter Raleigh Award. George is also the author of the monograph Veil of Humility, Plain Folk and Contemporary North Carolina Fiction. Pushcart Prize nominee and winner of the Denny C. Plattner Award from Appalachian Heritage, his short stories and essays have appeared widely in such journals as the Carolina Quarterly, Southern Cultures, Mississippi Quarterly, Limestone, the Southern Literary Journal, and North Carolina Literary Review. 
He is a professor of English at SUNY Oneida and a recipient of the SUNY Chancellor's Award for Excellence in Teaching. George earned a PhD in English from the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and has attended the Suwannee's Writers Conference and the Appalachian Writers Workshop and has lectured on the craft of fiction writing at the Amelia Island Book Festival, North Carolina Writers Network, UNC Wilmington, Murray State University, the Charlotte Writers Club, and Charlotte Lit. This is a conversation George and I had a few years ago about setting, and we used his book, The Skin Artist, uh, as illustrations throughout this discussion. George's setting is Charlotte, North Carolina, but it's a much darker, edgier setting in his book, The Skin Artist. In my upcoming novel, Deadly Decorations, I've set it in a retirement community. A little lighter, a little humor. But I do explore the streets of Charlotte, not necessarily the underbelly that George explores, but nonetheless, setting is a critical part of both his novel and mine as well. I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, so, but we're going to take this novel you've written. Uh, you're going to read a few excerpts during this show, but what we're going to do with it, uh, we're talking mysterious landscapes, unpredictable characters, unforgettable stories, but essentially you're sort of talking about this issue of trusting the place you know, how to let setting grow your story. That's right. Right. What do you mean by that? Um, well, a lot of times what young writers are looking for in the way of advice is how to generate material. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about how to use setting to generate authentic material that comes out of you. Mm -hmm. And you say that most of us are more than writers. I mean, that writers are more than just writers. That's so. right. Uh, <laughs> you know, writers are more than just writers. We've got, uh, we've got, we got to do something to, to pay for our that's writing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, and, and most of us are involved in all kinds of labor. Uh, I'm a teacher by trade, but I'm also a builder and a gardener. And I think most writers think about the connections between their other labors and their writing life. Uh, you often hear people talk about the connections between cooking and writing. I've thought a lot about uh, building and writing, whether it's building a home or a, a chicken coop. Mm. I'm curious, Landis, about the connections between practicing law and writing. Well, you know, every lawyer thinks they've got a book in them, you know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they just don't often sit down to write it. But uh, I think the law is a, a great feeding ground mm -hmm. for writers. Uh, it teaches you certain disciplines it teaches you to uh you know kind of come up with an outline if you're going to have a brief it teaches you to get to the point although lawyers yeah. don't often do a great job of doing that we've, we've seen that but there are certain things you sort of have to unteach yourself as well when you go from this idea of writing as a lawyer to writing you know a novel i mean you know because you're writing briefs and novels aren't brief yeah <laughs> right? and, and most <laughs> of the time people aren't going to want to read what a lawyer writes, but the, I had sort of this uh, thought one evening after I was more of a writer and now a podcaster, I thought, you know, I should have paid more attention to this because lawyer, I mean, like judges are readers. They want to be right. entertained, right? Yeah. They don't want to just read this dry brief. You got to give them something. And we, and we would do that sometimes, but mm -hmm. which, which, and I, I often heard these old lawyers say, well, you can give me the law, but the facts are the most important part of this case, huh. you know, and make your facts section stand out more than anything. 
Huh. You know, bring them in with the facts. Do you do well, that as a writer? You think? Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. you know the facts. Uh, well, facts in a certain sense, you've got a story to tell, right? Yeah. But um, you can't get hung up necessarily on all the rules that go yeah. into writing. You've got to let the writing flow, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I try to sit down, unlike I did as a lawyer sometimes, and take an idea and then write. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then come back and do what lawyers are also sometimes good at doing when they get their red pen out and strike through and you know correct and all this kind of thing. So that we do have that practice of revision, revision. but lawyers are – Probably not good at taking criticism. <laughs> I didn't so, know that. So, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we had to learn that. We had to re- learn the rejection thing and the revising thing. But, you know, I think probably every – so how does – turn it back on you for just a second. Uh, similarities between teaching writing and writing, where does the twain meet and where, where does it diverge? Well, um, I think I try to teach students to be revisers of their own work by practicing revision on their peers' work. That's what workshop is about. So hopefully when they're critiquing a peer's work, which is maybe easier than critiquing their own, they're learning how to critique their own work. Mm. And why did you start out with these questions about these connections between certain vocations and writing to talk about this topic of trusting the place you know? Is it because, like, uh, if I'm a lawyer, I should trust that I know these certain things and I tell I can use that to tell a story is it right what yeah. you know or is it yeah. to an extent I think that you probably have certain um, habits of mind that grow out of a, a different labor that applies to your writing life right. and also you know you're sitting down to your writing desk and you're saying I'm no good at this mm. you can say well you know I can build a chicken coop mm-hmm. so I can write a book right. or I can practice law <laughs> or I can cook a meal, yeah. and those talents that help me there, they're going to help me today. They will, and you, you do have to learn certain things because you know dialogue uh, is is a, is a characteristic of writing a novel, and character development is that lawyers don't typically do other right. than reciting back what happened in a deposition. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes it can be pretty good dialogue too, in and of itself. But I think this idea that you've got of starting with the foundation maybe yeah. is a is a good way to kind of get some words on the page right well the idea for me is you know thinking back to my work as a gardener i grew up gardening you mm. know my family did raised mm. a lot of the food that we ate i still have massive gardens every summer and one thing i've learned about gardening is the sun and the earth do most of the work. You're just there <laughs> to participate in the magic. Well, the deer do a lot of the work, too. Yeah, that's right. And the squirrels. I came, right. I came home one day, we had a garden, and, and there was a stalk of corn. I, heard, I never, I got one corn cob out of all the corn I planted in my garden in Charlotte because I came home one night, and the stalk was just shaking back and forth real fast. And I got in my car and ran back there, and there's a squirrel <laughs> just gnawing, you know. <laughs> Landis, that's why you don't plant corn. <laughs> well, you know what I— <laughs> I don't plant corn because it's sweet. It smells sweet. It draws the but, critters. But you know what? You, don't you plant sometimes things in your books to draw attention away from okay, other things? Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Hey, yeah, uh, right. I started right. using it to draw them away from my other plants. Right. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, keep your cornfield separate from your tomatoes. Exactly. So yeah. back, back to your analogy that's about good. the garden. Uh, so anyway, so I want to think about using the earth or the places on earth you have known 
to produce a harvest of words and scenes and characters. Mm. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I've noticed about my own writing is that my characters very often are imagined. Maybe they grow out of a fragment of myself into this separate being, or they are composites of fragments of a variety of people I've known, composted in my imagination. The more thoroughly composted, the better. But settings sometimes can be composites, but often are lifted whole cloth from my experience. And that gives me great comfort because I know that place and I can imagine what might happen there. Well, we had an exercise. I was taking a class recently. I, always, I like taking classes still in writing because things happen, right? And, and the exercise was, all right, you have to write about what you see in this room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and you think about that, and you go, oh, "This, this is going to be pretty boring." But then you start to notice things that you wouldn't have noticed otherwise. I didn't notice that there was a pencil sharpener on the wall. Who needs a pencil sharpener anymore? You know, right. and I started fixating on the pencil sharpener. <laughs> right. You know, so like you're saying, if you focus on a certain setting and you're even familiar with it to start with, it brings it even more into focus, right? Well, and one of the jobs of a fiction writer is to embody the story in a place. You don't want these disembodied voices talking to each other. The reader wants to inhabit a world. Uh, so, you know, that pencil sharpeners on the wall, you've got two characters talking and you need them to do something. Well, one of those characters can go over and sharpen a pencil right. and threaten yeah. the other one with it. <laughs> there you go. We got a novel starting already. Right. Uh, well, you know, and you're going to have a short reading to, as an illustration here, but you used in the skin artist, uh, Charlotte during a period of time. And, and we talked about this a little bit on the show that's going to come out in season six about how I was thrown off initially because you referred to the big bank in town uh, as Nations Bank, and I knew, well, gosh, it's not Nations Bank, that's Bank of America. Yeah. And yet I read further, and I saw the double door, and I saw other sites that are now gone, disappeared, bulldozed. Yeah. And I thought, oh, it's a different time period. Yeah, yeah. it's back in the 90s, yeah. the boom era, or what yeah. for me is that first yeah. real explosive period of growth in Charlotte. So tell us what you're about to read and how it illustrates the point you were just making. Um, so this is in the point of view of the book's protagonist, Bill Becker, whose life is coming totally unwound. His wife has kicked him out. He's about to lose his corporate job or I think he has lost it by this point. He falls in love with this heavily tattooed woman. He starts to acquire tattoos himself. And this passage comes from a low point in the book where he's trying to get his bearings, and he drives down or drives to uptown Charlotte and walks to that intersection of trade and Tryon and looks up at that massive structure, which as you pointed out in the 90s, was the Nations Bank Tower. After a short drive to the parking garage and a two-block stroll, he found himself at the base of the tower. In contrast to the airiness of nearby glass and steel skyscrapers, the Nations Bank building looked solid, built of stone, and not just veneer. Sixty stories he stood and counted. He stood on the sidewalk and read the bronze plaque giving the building's vital stats. Every day of the year, the building consumed nearly 300,000 kilowatt hours of electricity. The people rushed by him on the sidewalk, oblivious to the monolith rising above them. 
For a better view, he backed through pedestrian traffic to the edge of the sidewalk, his back against the roar, standing within the flowing river of exhaust. Sixty stories up there, the red, white, and blue flapped in the breeze. He leaned against the stinking breeze of speeding, honking cars and looked up, willing himself to forget his problems. So, so George, I've been in uptown Charlotte <laughs> practicing law for many years, and I've looked up, at, not only as they built it, but as I walk by it every day, and I can just see it just towers into the sky, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, you, you talk about using the, in, in this case, you use sort of, the tattoo is sort of a talisman as you go through it, but you also have this monolith. That's right. This sort of phallic symbol. Yeah, you know, this, that's right. It's in the story as well. Do you like placing these objects in stories to kind of be symbolic or metaphorical of what, what the story is yeah, about? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and talk about the value of doing that. Well, a, a setting becomes a character, you know, Every reader has read a review that says of a book setting, it was more than just a setting, it was another character in the novel. And um, I think that's what we have to do to bring a setting to life in a story. Ancient peoples were animists. They believed that spirits lived in trees and streams in the soil in a sense, as a writer, we've got to practice literary animism. We've got to penetrate beneath the surface of a place to divine its spirit, its essential character. Um, and, and your book does that because I was, you know, as, as interested in what was happening, you know, in the setting as I was, you know, with the characters. And the characters mm-hmm. were kind of symbiotically attached to this setting because actually there's – it's sort of like this underbelly. You've seen that Netflix upside down world or underworld, whatever that thing yeah, yeah. is, where, where it flips and there's an underside to it. Mm-hmm. Well, well, you might be a part of this upper world like Bill Becker is in here, but he gets pulled below the surface. That's right. right? He starts out in a gated community uh, in a corporate career, and then he gets sucked down into this seedy, underbelly, gothic, you know, underworld of Charlotte, of yeah. uh, straight joint, tattoo parlor. Um, it, yeah, and if he'd just been pulled down from the second floor of the bank to the first floor, it wouldn't have been quite as interesting. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, but uh, so talk about this idea of uh, the tattoo parlor and the double door in and the the other places that you set this story, sort of helping bring yeah. the story alive. Because you, you had to feel, you, you know, you write characters. But in this case, you were also adding inanimate characters. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, the double door in is the sort of first step in Bill's descent into this underworld. It's sort of the antechamber, the prologue to the <laughs> yeah. deeper strata. Great place to listen to music if it were still there. But yeah, that's right. I love it. I spent many, many evenings at the Double Door Inn. But but in the for the sake of progress, we knocked it down. Right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Like like most other buildings in in Charlotte. Right. So you said that setting. Uh, you've told me this. It can often serve as an antagonist. And yeah. Talk about that for a second. Well, that passage I just read of the Nations Bank Tower, I think that tower is 
both a magnet attracting Bill, seducing him into believing that there is this larger life than the one he grew up out in the Gaston County countryside. It's what pulls him to the shining city, I mm-hmm. think. But once he's there and he's going through all of these problems, he feels menaced by that tower. He wonders if it's a kind of Tower of Babel, as it were, uh, that's adding confusion to his life. So there is this ambivalence Bill feels toward that tower. And he feels a similar ambivalence uh, about the tattoo parlor. Mm-hmm. That uh, and, and this is another idea that I want to share with readers of how a setting can be an extension of a character. It mm. can help define a character. Yeah. And conversely, a character can help define a place. And that's very much true of the tattoo parlor in my novel where the artist, Niall, he is this very intelligent um, eccentric uh, artist who believes that with every tattoo he is altering the future of his clients' lives. And Bill and his new girlfriend Lucy are both desperate for brighter futures. So they both return over and over to Niall, this artist, hoping to chart uh, a brighter future. But when Bill enters the tattoo parlor, um, you know, he sees all of this, this kind of phantasmagoria of colors on the wall, on the ceilings, a combination of posters from Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel along with Polaroids of satisfied customers. And he is at once both drawn in and repelled. And I think that's a, a reaction a lot of people have to tattoos more generally, there's something seductive about them, but maybe a little frightening about them. And um, that is also true of Bill's relationship with his artist, Niall. Niall is this shaman, this intellect, this artist that captivates him. But Bill also wonders if maybe he's a con artist that, you know, um, yeah, and that, he doesn't that, know if he can trust him. You can't have a, a book that dives deep into tattoos without getting to the tattooist or to the location where that happens. Yeah. And you did that several times, you know, in the book. Um, you had a couple of examples you were telling me before we recorded about uh, how, you know, this idea of an antagonist for a setting. You, you gave a couple of examples, Clyde Edgerton and, yeah, yeah. and Jack London. Can you speak to that? Yeah. You know, Clyde Edgerton has a novel called Where Trouble Sleeps. And um, like most of his stories, this one is set in this sleepy little town yeah, this town has one stoplight. It's just a blinker light that hopefully will slow the traffic down as it passes through this wide spot in the road. But as the novel progresses, we learn how everybody is into everybody else's business. And that blinker light takes on this menacing quality of surveillance. It's like Sauron's eye is turned on the small town's people, you know, except maybe a kinder, gentler Sauron's eye. Kind of like, <laughs> right. kind of like that Nation's Bank Tower. Is yes, kind of, that's right. To, yeah. to Bill Becker. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, and I think probably if you're thinking about uh, setting as antagonist, the classic example are those frozen wastes of Jack London's Yukon tales. I think of To Build a Fire, where it's 
the freezing landscape that act that inevitably uh, it leads to the protagonist freezing to death. And, and in and in the book, the skin artist, you write there are several antagonists for the characters. Lucy has to dance at a strip joint That's right. to, to to make a living. Yeah, um, Lucy's got a past, and she has to confront that past in a trailer where she yeah. grew up. Speak to that. Yes, yes. Well, you know, two things. One, as a writer, place is your friend because every place you have been is a repository for your memories. So if you set a story or a scene there, um, even if you populate that setting with imagined characters, your memory will supply you with possibilities for action and dialogue and conflict. But also, if you think about it, settings are equally repositories of your character's memories. So that if you want to bring a character to life on the page, you can use setting to show them reconnecting with their pasts in that place. And it makes them very believable. It, it develops the character, the character's interior landscape as well as the external landscape they're inhabiting. For Lucy, um, she is the other main character of the story. She is going through a hard patch in her life. She has been a rape survivor for half her life. And at one pivotal moment in the novel, she goes back home to the trailer where the crime happened, where her mother's boyfriend, when she was a teenager, raped her. And so in Lucy's going back to that place to confront those haunting memories, that is a, a very emotional scene in the novel. And it's a place where the character's past, through her memory and her present, converge in this one setting. Yeah, I, I, I mean, the book, I, I remember the, the you can picture it. She's going up the steps to this trailer. Grass is growing up underneath. It's dirty inside. The mother's living on borrowed time yeah. and borrowed money, mostly trying to borrow it from Lucy. That's right. <laughs> That's right. You can just see this, and yeah. then there's a photo on the wall. I won't give anything more away about that. They can listen in season six or buy the book and read it before then, but it's a great scene. Uh, all right, you talked about setting. You talked about a stage for different uh, – parts of the book, you know, Niles on stage in the tattoo parlor, mm-hmm. um, Bill's on stage, literally sometimes, at different <laughs> joints such as the right. strip club or the double door because he's drunk and he's up and around there. Talk about the difference between or sort of taking, you know, stage to the page. Yeah, yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So it is interesting to think about the similarities between drama and fiction and, and dissimilarities as well. But one of the things you can learn from drama is economy, especially economy of settings. I'm a big advocate for recycling, reusing. What's the other R, Landis? I, revising. Re- <laughs> revising, that's right. Uh, reusing, we, we recycling talk, talk your about, settings. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're directing a re- play. Re-energizing, maybe. Or, <laughs> right, right, all the R's. Yeah. Um, if you're directing a play and you hire set designers and builders to build you a set, hammer all the framing together 
Yeah, use the level to keep it all square, put up the flats, paint it, maybe add some trim, maybe paint the trim, carefully select the furniture, place all the knickknacks on the walls. And then when the first scene is over and the actors have left the stage, you, the big shot director, you know, you tell these poor set builders, oh, that was great. That was a beautiful setting, but uh, we're just going to use that for scene one. Uh, and here's what I'd like for you to do in building the next set. How do you think those guys are going to look at you? <laughs> you know, yeah, right. It's the same with a reader of fiction. The reader has worked hard to imagine that space, and they're, they're waiting for more action to occupy it. But if you, you know, if you move on and make them build another setting in their imagination, then another one, they get so exhausted constructing settings that uh, they have trouble seeing the story. So, so you're saying that if you get once you lay the foundation for this setting, maybe at that point put things in the the space that are important, so that when people come back, they feel comfortable. They know where right. they are. Yeah. That's right. That when they come back to that place, they know where they are, and they kind of know what to expect because they've learned that setting as a character. Maybe they see the pencil sharpener in scene one, but they don't find out it's important it's until, until scene two right that's right that's right <laughs> yeah. you know i want you know, think about the theater yeah. for a minute yeah. again and how you know think about the last time you saw a play and how many settings were there in a you know it's different in hollywood but in a play how many settings yeah we just uh well not many i mean if they're if they're if the action's moving right i mean they don't have but uh Maybe the curtain goes down, they change the setting. but Maybe, yeah. Maybe. And a lot of times it's your imagination. That's right. They might move something around on stage that makes you help. You imagine you're in a different place. Yeah. But the accoutrements are not much different than they were. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, a couple of settings. couple, yeah. Sometimes just one setting. Just one. And as a, as a member of the audience, think about the effect of sitting there in the chair gazing at that one or two or three settings for a couple of hours and just feeling how that space shapes the lives that occupy that space. And I think it's the same in fiction. You, you start to feel how the spaces shape the lives that occupy the settings. So do the settings ever break down for you? I saw, I saw this play called The Play That Went Wrong. I think that was the title of it, but Everything that could go wrong went wrong. It was a slapstick. It was one of these things where a picture would fall off the wall or something that was in the room wasn't working the way it should and somebody had to come repair it. Do you find yourself sometimes <laughs> looking at your settings and saying, I need to fix this. This is not working. I need to add more yeah. to it to make it more believable. It just all I've put them in as a box. I haven't really dressed it up. Um, we, you know, that is a real good question, Landis. I think for me uh, – Building settings has, the, the, the question is, how much detail, when? So one major difference between the theater and the page is that you're sitting in the theater, the curtain goes up, and bam, you, you take in the whole setting at a glance. And if you're reading a setting on a page, you, you can't do that. It's... Uh, you know, cause fiction's a temporal yeah, uh, form. You, you can only see what the author is letting you see. Right? Yeah, and usually yeah. I think a, a, 
a good author is going to feed you a few details at a time and build a setting over time because setting too much setting description can bore a reader. They're wanting action. They're wanting drama. They're wanting dialogue, tension, interactions between the character. And so you only have so much space on the page at any given time to describe a setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And if you work the setting into the dialogue, I found that to be most interesting. I mean, maybe there's a conversation going on in the kitchen, and while it's going on, she picks up the egg beater and starts it up, and it, it doesn't start, and she curses and then turns back and is talking to the person again. And somebody picks up a cigarette and puts it out, and you can hear the thump, thump. Yeah. And it goes into the cigarette container as they pause, yeah. thinking about the question that was just asked. You know, that's right. That's you know, right. You know, and that makes me think of something Henry James said that, you know, don't paint scenes or don't paint paintings, paint action. And that's the, as you're describing it. Right. You integrate the setting yeah. details as part of the action of the scene as often yeah. as you can. Well, you talked to me about one North Carolina. Uh, you were president of the the Wolf Foundation, I guess it was, and, and you talk about Thomas Wolf a little bit in this presentation you yeah. made. He didn't have a problem putting words on the page. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. He, he, yeah. he didn't. Yeah. He, he, had a, he, he had a famous editor, Max Perkins, who had to rein him in, right? And, That's uh, right. And try to control the amount he put on the page. But uh, you've got an example involving his work. Uh, I do. Uh, so, you know... Um, one of the things that Wolf understood intuitively is this connection between character and setting and how a setting can manifest a character or also how it can shape a character. Now, if you, I'm thinking the listeners out there, probably a lot of them are North Carolina, mm-hmm. North Carolinians, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. read Lacombard Angel. They remember some of the vivid settings of that of that book. There's the magical campus of Chapel Hill or Pulpit Hill, as it's called, that sort of expresses the students' lives and vice versa. Or I think of the the brothel in nearby Durham, or the all night diner in Altamont, where the doctors and the newspaper men uh, gather. But for me, the Two primary settings are two houses. There's the home that Eugene Gant grows up in on Woodson Street, what he thinks of later as Papa's house after his parents have separated. And when he's a young person, he remembers the abundant orchards and grape vines that his father cultivates and that are an expression of his father's uh, kind of Dionysian um, abundance and also the roaring fires that Gant builds with liberal doses of kerosene winter mornings. Uh, it's sort of a corollary to Gant's roaring drunks when he's hit the bottle. <laughs> and then when Eugene is still young, his mama buys the boarding house and takes him away from all that. The boarding house, Dixieland, that Gant describes as the barn because of its drafts. And the the cold air and the draftiness of Dixieland also express the emotional cold of that place for Eugene or the the emotional 
deprivation of being taken away from a family that's that's all together. Mm. And it also expressed, I think, the way Eugene experiences his mother, Miss Eliza, who's preoccupied with the needs of the boarders and and not always attending to his needs. And as I, I've got a little sample I'd like to read here. Sure. Um, a description of Dixieland. And it's interesting in this first line, the word skirts, I think, connects the house to its owner, Miss Eliza. In winter, the wind blew howling blasts under the skirts of Dixieland. Its back end was built high off the ground on wet columns of rotting brick. Its big rooms were heated by a small furnace which sent up when charged with fire, a hot, dry innervation to the rooms of the first floor and a gaseous but chill radiation to those upstairs, which is, of course, where Eugene sleeps. The chill walls festered with damp. They drank in death from the atmosphere. Yeah, not a cheerful place. Right? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Yet hundreds of tourists uh, find their way in pilgrimage just to its real life counterpart every yeah, year. Yeah, so yeah, the old Kentucky home. The all right, Memorial. let's let's keep on with these uh, these famous authors here for a minute. You've got another example. You take us down uh, the Mississippi River. Yeah. Too. Well, one of the ways that settings can function is, you know, I talked about a, a setting as a character or a setting as a, an extension of a character in the novel or vice versa. But if you have multiple settings in a novel, they can serve as multiple characters that enter into relationships with each other, just as the characters in the book enter into relationships with each other. And one of the things I always tell my students is fiction is all about relationships. It's about human relationships. But as we see here, it can be about relationships among landscapes. Uh, think of uh, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and how you've got multiple settings, but they divide into two categories, the river and the shoreline. And as long as Huck and Jim are on the river, just the two of them on this raft, life is free and easy and pretty good. Um, but as soon as they step ashore, then all hell breaks loose, and they meet these faux aristocrats who are embroiled in a blood feud or, you know, um, the Arkansas hillbillies who are um, trying to set dogs on fire for daily entertainment mm. or any number of people who are trying to make a buck on a fugitive slave. And uh, life is dangerous on the shore. It promises something much better when it's just the two, uh, two characters on the river. So it's shore versus river. In that, so in when that you're novel. thinking about setting there, you, you, can, you can think about physical setting, what the river looks like, what it feels like when you touch it, what it tastes like if you drink it. The same thing with the shoreline, you know. But that's physical, that's visual, mm -hmm. that's not what's going on in those places. But you alluded to that a second ago about the things that can happen in different types of settings. And, and using yeah. your book, for example, things happen much differently in the underbelly of Charlotte than they do in South Charlotte or at the mall or whatever. So yeah. can setting also be about not just the physical surroundings, but what's happening in that space? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think... N uh, not just these characters I'm talking about who, who bring their own backstories mm -hmm. and their own 
internal conflicts, but what goes on in that space when you cross over the sweet tea line, for example. Right, right, <laughs> and, right. And you no longer can get sweet tea. You know, in my novel, that's where the fun is. <laughs> you know, that, that's where it's only when uh, there's a promise of danger breaking out that I right. think the setting is really thrilling in right. my novel. Yeah. Thank Shawshank Redemption. You know, you've got that setting, uh, those prison walls that you can't escape. And then once he's out, once the institutional man has made it out, He's in another prison of his own. Yeah, making, yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's a foreign, it's foreign to it. That's right. right. Yeah, that's right. So try, I guess trying to juxtapose is a good way to look at setting too. Yeah, we I mean, was thinking thinking about uh, Huck Finn and the juxtaposition of these two settings, the river and the shore. Uh, you got similar things that go on in my novel between the competition between the rural landscape of Gaston County and the city landscapes of Charlotte, both the gated community and the ink factory on one hand, and then this underbelly of tattoo parlors and strip joints on the other hand. And those different settings are competing with each other. Mm -hmm. they're, they're sort of competing for the character. Another thing that happens, you know, you know, just sort of comparing the structure of my novel to Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Twain's novel is episodic. So... You're progressing farther south as the novel progresses, and you go to one after another, different settings. My novel structure is more recursive, so you go back to and back right. to they're and going back, back to. They're going, he might go down to Gaston County, he might come back. That's right. He, he might go from the seedy side of Charlotte back to the gated community. Exactly. Right, and then back again. And so what I hope happens is the reader becomes more and more familiar with each of those settings and starts to wonder, what's going to happen here? There's going to be some kind of ultimate showdown in this place, and I want to know what that is. So place can develop suspense as a story progresses. You know something's going to happen. You want to find out what it is. You've got an example, too, from uh, Zora... Neil yeah, Zora Neale Hurston's novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Uh, and in this, in this novel, uh, it's set in Florida, much of it in the town of Eatonville, the first um, incorporated all-black community in America where Zora Neale Hurston is from. Uh, Eatonville's not far from Orlando, but long before the Disney empire... <laughs> totally changed that landscape. Um, in this novel, it's a, it's a novel of uh, marriages where Janie is, she marries three times, each time hoping for true love to find someone who's going to help her fulfill her desire to meet the people she needs to meet in her life. And her first two husbands are having none of that. They just want to control Janie. And the landscape in each of those first two marriages is used to emphasize how she is isolated. In the first one, she's on this remote farm, sitting on the porch, peeling potatoes all day, waiting for her man to come home. In the second one, she marries a prosperous, ambitious man who becomes the first mayor and major entrepreneur of this town of Eatonville, and she becomes Mrs. Mayor, 
but mm-hmm. he makes her stand behind a cash register all day. So she's essentially imprisoned within that store while everybody else is sitting out on the porch, telling tales, joking around, having a good time, and she's isolated from the community. And then in her third marriage, she marries this rounder named Tea Cake who says, you know, let's get out of here. Let's go have some fun. So they go on an adventure down into the Everglades together, what he calls the muck. And um, she finds the life she had been yearning for. Mm. And sort of the adventure of common migrant farm workers. It's interesting to me to compare... Hurston's novel with Steinbeck's as portraits of migrant farm labor. For her, this is the good life. I have a passage I could read sure. from, from that novel. And this, this passage, I think, exemplifies how setting can further define a character by showing the way a character responds to a setting. So this is Janie seeing the muck, the Everglades, for the first time, and we know a lot about her based on how she responds. To Janie's eyes, everything in the Everglades was big and new. Big Lake Okeechobee, big beans, big cane, big weeds, big everything. Weeds that did well to grow waist high up the state were eight and often ten feet tall down there. Ground so rich that everything went wild. Volunteer cane just taking the place. Dirt roads so rich and black that a half mile of it would have fertilized a Kansas wheat field. Wild cane on either side of the road hiding the rest of the world. People wild, too. You can sort of sense her awe and wonder at this place. Yeah, yeah. Both in terms of the, you know, the plant life and, uh, you know, what it looked like, but also the people. That's right. People are wild. People too. wild too. <laughs> yeah, and she's loving it. She's yeah. she's looking forward to the party, though, working hard and playing hard. Well, let, yeah. let's let's shift for a second um, to talk about a topic that uh, authors sometimes get asked, uh, and so I'll ask you. It's about outlining. Um, do they, you know, squelch your artistic side? Do they help support it? Uh, a little of both. Where do you come down, and how do you use it in terms of building setting? I I use outlines uh, as a tool, but they're always tentative. I always allow my muse to override whatever plans I make. And outlines are more descriptive than prescriptive, so I use them to help me see what I've written, sort of what I've mapped out, and it's fluid. It changes. So when you did The Skin Artist, did you have an outline... Uh, both for the content of the novel and also an outline of the world itself. That's right. Yeah. In fact, in addition to an outline, I used a map. So I had a map that would show me where I was in each chapter. A map that you created or uh, did you take a map of Charlotte? I superimposed my settings on a Charlotte map and then it evolved as it it went along. So that's, that's a good technique. So if you've got an area that you want to set something in, find an old map and use right. it to help ground yourself in that setting. But then if you want to add those fictional places, like you added a fictional strip 
joint. Yeah. There you put them where you want to put them, right? Yeah. So I took certain liberties with uptown area. But you're, I, you're a fiction writer. You can do that. <laughs> but I did try to be accurate as possible uh, to the various locations. Late in the book, Bill is wandering uh, through Charlotte at nighttime, and he can see the Nations Bank Tower, what was then Nations Bank Tower, from this particular point, and I wanted to make sure that he could see that from there. So maps are useful in just sort of keeping you oriented if you want to keep it accurate. Yeah, well, I think um, as I read the book, like you said, you do have some license to add certain things, but I kept asking myself, "Now, where's that located? Now, where's you know, where's?" And it, but you also put it in a place that it would be reasonable for it to be located. Yeah, right. So that's a good thing too. All right. So, so George, we, we've talked about the explicit setting on the page, and uh, I guess one question I haven't asked you is, you know, what's the difference between alluding to settings? and then putting your characters in those settings. And what's the timing, you know, for when you do that? Because someone may dream about going to a place, for example. Yeah. But they're not in that place yet. Or someone may allude to something that happened in their past. And in your book, that may, that's the trailer, you know, when Lucy goes back that's to right. confront her mother. But you don't see it until a different part. So what, what are your thoughts about alluding to something and then putting – the reader yeah. in that space. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, so a dramatic scene takes up a lot of pages. That takes up a lot of space. So you only get so many of those in a book. But when you allude to a place, you can do that in a sentence or two. You can do that very frequently. And, um, for example, the Double Door Inn is a big chapter early in the novel but we don't ever go back there for a full-fledged scene but there are frequent allusions to the double door where bill is wondering if he went there would he find lucy there so because we've been in that place once just a sentence or two about it later on evokes that place in our mind Mm -hmm. similarly um a reader might start to anticipate a visit to a place by having illusions ahead of time. For example, as you say, Lucy thinks about her mama's trailer and where this terrible thing happened to her. And so finally, when she goes there, uh, the reader, I hope, is nervous, is anxious about the the confrontation that's going to happen in this place. Or, for example, the jackpot the strip club where Lucy works and where Bill compulsively goes to, to find her. I told myself, I was only going to have one chapter in the jackpot in this novel. <laughs> um, but, uh, and it's a, it's a dark chapter. You know, it, it sort of shows uh, how the, the sort of ongoing trauma that Lucy experiences is exacerbated by that place. How it becomes a sort of dark place for Bill and his friend Kent as well. Um, but there are frequent allusions to the jackpot before the reader actually enters those padded doors and spends 20 pages there. I'm also thinking as you're talking here about um, the anticipation that can be built up in a good novel by a setting that you can't see until you arrive. Yeah. Lord of the Rings, they're on a quest. That's right. 
you know, uh, in, in one of my favorite books, Lonesome Dove, they're on this cattle drive. You, you don't know what this place, you hear about it, you hear about what they think it's about. Yeah. But you're not going to see it until much later in the book and all these things. And sometimes what what you see and what the characters see are not necessarily what you thought you are going to see. So uh, that can be a way, too, I suppose, to keep the reader interested in setting. That is, you're foreshadowing a setting, and maybe you're not a reliable narrator yeah. when it comes to that. Well, a story yeah. that's a, a quest, uh, yeah. and you, you're you hoping to arrive in a certain destination, that foreshadowing, that anticipation of the place is a big part of it. Right. I suppose there's some of that in most any story. Yeah, that's true. Um in your story, your your characters are searching for different things, um, but also, I think Bill Becker, who's had this fall from grace, is sort of searching for what setting does he want to end up yeah. living his life in, right? And so you're trying to describe these different options yeah. for him and for the reader, right, that he has. Yeah, to a certain extent. Because he's in love with Lucy, Yeah, right? absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But that's a whole different world. Right. It's a whole different world. Yeah. And in order to find her, he's got to go where she is. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have a read here at the end, just a minute here, that, that shows the difference in those two worlds. But before that, there's another question that popped into my mind when I was writing my third book, I wrote this scene that I was real proud of, of course, you know, that happened as a protest in Washington, D.C. on the mall involving the, the young daughter of the protagonist. And uh, my editor pointed out that we didn't need the scene. We could allude to what happened, but it wasn't integral to the story, mm-hmm. and it didn't keep the story moving. And after I thought about that for a while, I said, you're right. So talk about settings that sometimes you write that you have to get rid of yeah. for one reason or another. Well, you said it, Landis, mm-hmm. right there. Mm-hmm. It's is If this scene is not, if it's impeding the narrative flow rather than furthering it, right. you need to cut it. Yeah. Even if there's information there that you need in the story, you can find another way to introduce exactly. it. Maybe yeah. as flashback, sure. you know, backstory. Yeah. But you don't necessarily need to develop it into a full-fledged scene with a setting. Right, because you, you want the story to move along. That's right. right. You can't get bogged down, I wouldn't say, in the weeds, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, for me, that's one of the main things yeah. I'm trying to achieve, that yeah. when I'm writing, in a way, I want the experience of reading my novel for, to be like listening to a rock and roll song mm-hmm. or a, a blues song. I want there to be that energy, that driving momentum and if there's something that slows that momentum down, it's got to go. So to wrap this up, you've got a nice read that uh, I really connected to as I was reading the book because it involves the Billy Graham Parkway, which I've ridden on, I don't know, thousands of times probably, either on the way to and from the airport or on the way to get to I- I-85 to head yeah. up to the mountain. So uh, you want to set this sure. up first and then you can read it? Well, it's interesting to think about place names, you know, where – where the names of our rivers and roads and things come from. And it says a lot about uh, our culture, that an evangelist is the name of this road that connects Bill's current life in the city to his roots in the country. And he's at a point in the story here where his life in the city is unraveling. You know, his credit cards are maxed out. He's lost his corporate job. His wife has kicked him out. His girlfriend has given him the cold shoulder, 
and he's going where we all go when we're at our, you know, when no one else will take us. He's going home. And so this is Bill leaving the city to go back to the country. Up ahead, he saw the exit for Billy Graham Parkway and the hymns cranked up in his head. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, help me stand. He turned on his car stereo, punched the buttons until he found a wailing guitar and still the pressure of the pipe organ built in his brain. He gritted his teeth, stomped the gas, but at the last minute his foot dropped from the pedal and he felt the Mercedes changing lanes gliding off to the right. So he answered the altar call. He rode the Billy Graham Parkway to I-85, then flowed with traffic heading west. He stayed in the passing lane and listened to the engine hum. The nation's bank tower haunted his rear view. In the waves of heat rising from pavement, uptown flickered in the distance. How long would it take Nations Bank to erect a second tower for them to finance a third, a tenth, a hundredth skyscraper? Total metastasis. The bull couldn't run forever. There would come a reckoning yet. Bathed in neon, it was easy to believe yourself free, to live for the moment. But he was headed toward a very different landscape. Mill houses covered in vinyl siding, tall chimneys standing alone in fields decades after the home place burned, the ghost of pig shit on the wind years after the sty succumbed to a sea of kudzu, everywhere reminders of past generations and their claims on you. So, George, what I like about that, you've tethered the characters and their stories and their conflicts to the setting, right? Yeah. Yeah. Bill is staring in the rearview mirror at this monolith. He's headed back to an area of his roots. Um, he's caught somewhere in between. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And we don't know um, until the very end of the book where he'll land. Yeah. So, okay, so a little, little recap here. So trust the place you know how to let setting grow your story. As uh, George says, uh, most of us, more than writers, take advantage of that. Take advantage of what you know to put yourself in a setting. Um, use those labors that you've labored at to uh, to find a way to tell your story. But uh, keep in mind that it's still okay as a fiction writer to imagine your characters, right, George? That's yeah, right. Yeah, uh, because that's the fun part of letting your muse take over. Um, and as you say, for you, um, settings are, are a different matter. Sometimes settings become characters themselves, as, you, as you've done in the Skin artist, right? Yeah. And, and uh, when you say, I like this, you said when you set a scene in a place that you know well, it gives you great comfort. And if you can feel comfort in the setting yourself, uh, then it feels natural to you to write about it, right? I think comfort is a requirement for good writing. You mm -hmm. know, you have to feel this confidence, this comfort that what you have to say, you're going to say with some authority. Yeah, that's how I felt when I was writing the courtroom scenes in my books. I I'd been in court so many times. I knew what it was like, and you know, it was sort of second nature. And that in, comes across. And to be, thank you, to be yeah. in that space. So, uh, and you said each place should be a repository of your memories, uh, which is true. Uh, use your memories to help build your characters. Um, and I think, you know, just in terms of setting, generating a story, so much of first drafts, uh, it's an unconscious process. You don't know what's going to come out. So when you 
imagine a place and you're back at a place, then all of this stuff just comes out. The earth mm. does the work for you. Mm. And then I like what you've done here. You talked about setting, serving as an antagonist, which it does in your book, The Skin Artist. It certainly was for Bill Becker when he entered the tattoo parlor for the first That's time. That's right. <laughs> and got his first tattoo unconscious uh, uh, and then came back to sort of explore the mysteries, uh, the historical mysteries of, of tattooing. Uh, and you gave some great examples of that. And then you, you compare and contrast the stage from the page because what you can see on the stage visually um, – you know, unless the author brings you in and lets you know what's there, mm -hmm. you're not going to see it all. And what you choose to share with the reader, are you going to be omniscient? Are they going to see the whole space? Or are they only going to see the space through the eyes of a particular character and their point of view? Because one person may yeah. see a space one way and another person see it entirely differently. And that's okay. You yeah. know, one thing, um, in writing settings – a lot of usually the writer is collaborating with the reader so that you remember a few details from your favorite coffee shop and you mm. provide those to the reader. You don't need to tell everything about that place. Mm -hmm. Tell maybe how the coffee smells, the chair of the espresso machine. You've given the reader all they need to imagine their favorite coffee shop so that the setting that develops in a reader's mind is part what you give, but part what they bring to the page. Yeah, and you talked about as well the duality of settings. You know, you've got the river scene, Huck Finn, then you've got where they're on land, yeah. two different environments. So you can add three different environments and so forth. Um, outlining, uh, I love the fact that you talk about using a map with setting because um, I'm a visual person. Yeah. yeah most a lot of people are visual people, and, and if you can see that map and sort of see how things happened, and maybe if you're telling a story over a period of time, get maps from different time periods, right? That's right, and yeah. see them see them over that period of time. So, um, and then of course you uh, talk about uh, how characters um, they're facing suspense in their choices and what's chasing them, either internally or externally, but the characters can be put in suspense by the settings that they're put in. Yeah. Right? It was an uneasy feeling for Bill to be in a tattoo parlor. It That's was right. an uneasy feeling for Lucy to be in the home of these upstanding, upright, religiously fit-minded people in rural Gaston County when she visited. Them. I like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, how you can take a character and make them uncomfortable in a setting, right. Right. and that generates all kinds of good tension. Well, George, this has been great. Uh, I know that uh, people are going to find out about you through the show notes and so forth But uh, on your episode for Season 6, but tell them your website. GeorgeHovis.net. Okay, and at that site, they'll be directed to some videos, too, about this That's book. That's right, right? You yeah. Know, you sat down and you sort of explored the different aspects of this book. Uh, and some different aspects connected Charlotte in particular in those videos. That's great. Well, thank you for sitting down with us today to talk about this. I, I didn't ask you on the other show what's next for you. Are you writing something else? At the I moment? am. Yeah. Uh, I'm working on a novel titled Blacklight, as in those Blacklight posters oh. from the 1970s. It's, uh, it explores um, race relations in the newly desegregated South. Mm, I can see a, 
a dark, edgy book cover in the future here. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Maybe a blacklight poster like we used to have in That'd the early 70s. Yeah. You know? And they played yeah. Inagata DeVita, one song that lasted 33 minutes on one side. So yeah. maybe you get a novel and you get a free black light bulb to go with it. <laughs> See, you're already thinking marketing, right? Uh, thanks so much, George. Thank you, Landis. Yeah. It's been great. <laughs>